When I was 14, living in St. George, Utah, one of my favorite things to do was browse the bookshelves of my local thrift shop called Deseret Industries. I was mostly looking for classic books I'd heard of, but I started noticing that there was one book I would see again and again of various ages, conditions, and printings. A book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Like many middle schoolers, I didn't think people liked me very much, and I wanted desperately to have more friends. So I bought a 1967 edition, only slightly marked up with notes, and started reading it. It was great. I learned so many useful things, like how the best way to get people to like you is to ask them to talk about themselves. What I didn't realize is that I was reading a self-help book, one of the most popular ever. This genre is especially popular in America, a country that believes anyone can achieve anything with a little grit and determination. And their popularity doesn't look to fade anytime soon. Sales of self-help books nearly doubled between 2013 and 2020. Although perhaps the most famous, Dale Carnegie was not the first self-help author. That honor belongs to a man named Samuel Smiles. Many people have not heard of him, and if they have, they kind of write him off as being um, one of these kind of Victorian practical writers who nobody really thinks about or cares about anymore. But actually, uh, he was one of the very first authors to coin this term self-help and to really use it in the title of a book. My name is Beth Blum, and I'm an assistant professor of English uh, at Harvard, and I specialize in modernist and contemporary literature. Smiles published Self-Help in 1859. With this book, he invented a genre, though one that was certainly inspired by existing ones. There's something about um, the ability of his kind of practical advice uh, that resonates, I think, with these other practical wisdom traditions um, that one finds in kind of Japanese culture with its kind of inheritance of some Chinese Confucianism and, um, and other cultures as well. And so every culture has their own wisdom tradition. And I think part of the kind of global appeal of Smiles is the way that he, um, he can complement these pre-existing uh, advice traditions that, that are found uh, in each place. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Beth Blum to discuss Samuel Smiles's self-help. Samuel Smiles was born in 1812. He was born in Scotland. Um, he had numerous brothers and sisters, and apparently the... the um, the story is that he got his appreciation for industry and perseverance from his mother, who was very hardworking, uh, and he worked as an editor. At 26, Smiles became the editor of the progressive newspaper, The Leeds Time. The position was a good fit for Smiles. He was dedicated to reforming the Scottish government. While working as the editor of The Leeds Times, he advocated for free trade, women's suffrage, and parliamentary reform. He constantly attacked the aristocracy but despite his efforts, saw little change. After leaving the Leeds Times in 1842, he became an administrator in the railway and insurance industries. It was during this time that he became interested in a new kind of writing, biographies. 
1857, he published Life of George Stevenson, a biographical work on the inventor and founder of the railways. Stevenson helped pioneer the locomotive and developed the standard gauge for rail tracks. Smiles would go on to publish many other biographies, including Life of a Scotch Naturalist, Thomas Edward, and George Moore, Merchant and Philanthropist. Smiles was also still interested in social reform, but he turned his attention from reforming parliament to reforming individuals. In 1859, he combined his interest in biography and reform when he published Self-Help. Could you tell us now about the book itself? So how is it organized? Like, what was it like to read? Like, what, what is the book? What's in it? It's called Self-Help with Illustrations of Character, Conduct, and Perseverance. The perseverance was added in the second edition, but it became a key term. He came to regret the title because the book quickly acquired a reputation as kind of promoting selfishness. Um, he said, oh, you know, in some sense, the, the title is unfortunate because the book is perceived as offering a kind of eulogy of selfishness. Um, and, and that's not the spirit in which it's intended at all. In fact, he's much more interested in um, mutual aid and collaborative kind of collective improvement. Um, so, so, yeah, the book begins, you open it. And there, the first thing that I notice when I open the title page is that there's two quotations. One is by Shakespeare and one is by Thackeray. So right away, this gets me interested in self-help as being a form that is not separate from the literary, but one that's invested in and very interested in uh, literary quotation, and that's actually using literature throughout. So to me, what really is most striking about this handbook is that it contains just pages and pages of quotations from different authors that have been kind of taken out of their original context and repurposed as, as practical advice. So, so that it doesn't matter who's speaking, who the persona is, or what the, you know, the actual original use of these quotations is, but, um, but the way that they can offer practical tips to readers. In addition to practical tips, Smiles includes real stories of success. He shares biographical sketches of chemists, linguists, and other people, well, men, who have worked hard, persevered, and achieved success. You know, so-and-so had to walk eight miles to go to, to learn to read at the village school. Um, another person had to kind of practice learning grammar with the burnt end of a stem. You know, all of these cases of overcoming adversity and, and difficult uh, origins to be successful. And um, that's really the kind of key form of of the text. And, and the idea was that the very kind of abundance of names and examples was part of the kind of inspirational force of the text and that people would see all of these examples and realize that um, that this kind of this kind of future would be obtainable for them as well. This message was key for smiles. Scotland, like much of the Western world, was changing. Mass industrialization was on the rise. Many people found themselves stuck working long hours in factories, often in miserable conditions. People were being treated no better than the machines they operated. He saw that there was a need for um, sources who could inspire and rouse working class um, individuals to kind of band together and to educate themselves. Um, the population, you know, there was not a lot of literacy at the time, but there was some, and there was a kind of hunger for models of how one could, uh, through literature, through reading, 
um, learn to kind of unite and um, advocate for better conditions. He was actually asked by a, a working men's club to come and give lectures to the society. And the society, um, they met in an abandoned cholera hospital. So Smiles was very impressed by the sign of uh, industriousness and kind of ingenuity uh, that these men would meet there and just for the mere purpose of wanting to improve themselves. He compiled his guidance and advice into self-help. And he went on to become a great, huge international sensation. And the book became tremendously popular all over the world. So industrialization and capitalism are becoming more and more important as a factor in people's lives. Um, and what, does, what do the ideas of personal growth have to do with these economic changes? So Smiles, he was really concerned with the idea that, um, that people, laborers, miners, and people working in factories and in industry were overly kind of dependent on, on the idea of the government offering aid or support. And he, he wanted to argue that people should not depend on institutions for um, support. Um, the problem is that that is often taken to be read as a kind of um, defense of laissez-faire government and the idea that it's not the government's responsibility to support um, individuals or to intervene in the affairs um, of the working classes. Um, but really, I think his politics were a little more radical and he was interested in kind of inspiring workers uh, to show them to, to not wait for the government to intervene, but to try to themselves improve their conditions. Smiles believed that without developing one's character, worldly success was meaningless. Smiles himself was inspired by Emerson and the idea of self-reliance. He was really inspired by John Stuart Mill. Um, and, and so I think that this kind of energetic individualism, this philosophy of, of strong individualism, um, was very much part of the, the self-culture of the time. Um, and, and also just these very quintessential Victorian values, thrift, um, determination, perseverance. These are just the epitome of the kind of Victorian uh, ethic. And, and they're ones that Smiles came to really embody uh, and to espouse. What did he think was going to happen with this book? Yeah, so he was he imagined the book as as a resource for these young autodidacts who who wanted to improve themselves. And um, and this is interesting because self-help is often critiqued for being um, kind of uh, anti-political, for discouraging um, for discouraging uh, social kind of reform and progress and encouraging people instead to focus on their own individual problems, um, their individual temperament at the expense of kind of broader social reform. It's almost less the, the precise kind of tips the book offers than the just general kind of inspiration um, to go out and to forge one's way in the world, um, to leave behind, you know, one's origins and to try to, to create a new life. Um, this is something that, that people really felt when they read Smiles' book and, and not just kind of British laborers, but people all over the world. So there's incredible examples of people 
in Korea, in Africa, in Egypt who read self-help. Um, and were inspired by this not to kind of accept the political reality as it was, but to go on and try to fight for political independence and to advocate for reform and all of this um, kind of fascinating fascinating stuff. So um, so Smiles is a really interesting example because he shows how, how difficult it is to say, well, this is the influence of self-help. Um, it's one thing and, and this is what it did. Um, but it shows the way that people use books uh, for different purposes, depending on their context and, and the different possibilities that every book kind of contains uh, in terms of that influence. It does sound like it's, you know, very isolated individuals that Society is sort of this neutral environment of struggle, and you have to just push your way up. Um, you know, what is the what is the philosophy of the individual um, at the at the time that that this is written? There was a much kind of a much stronger belief in the the kind of transcendent possibilities of individual agency than you find in kind of post structuralist or modernist kind of discourse. Um, so, so a, a real kind of faith in the ability um, of of the will to um, to transcend circumstance, and and you can see how that would uh, line up with some kind of more recent self help, which argues that you know kind of returns to this idea that the individual can use mind power, use visualization um, to to improve their conditions and become rich or <laughs> become popular or whatever you want. So he, he publishes this book. And as you said before, it became a sensation. What was the immediate reception of this book? And how did it change both Samuel's life and uh, people who read it? Like, you know, how, what are some of the early influences of the text? Yeah, so the book um, was tremendously popular when it appeared. It, it said that Victorian Victorian readers would have, you know, a copy of the Bible and a copy of Samuel Smiles' self-help. And, and those were the two books that, that everyone kind of had. But um, it was not only popular um, in Britain, but all over the world. And to me, one of the most fascinating examples of this is that the book became incredibly popular in Meiji, Japan. Um, so in the early 20th century, the book was translated in Japan uh, by a Confucian scholar, and um, it became just this enormous sensation. Um, Japan had been a closed society for two centuries, and then suddenly the doors were opened and there was a great eagerness to hear about the West, to kind of absorb the stories and lessons of the West and Samuel Smiles' book became a kind of cheat sheet to modernization. And you had people lining up overnight to buy a copy. Um, you had the book being used as a kind of textbook in, in schools. Um, it was called the Bible of the Meiji. And, um, and the thing that really fascinates me about that is that through Smiles' quotations of literary texts, um, many of, of the like, really most popular Western literary texts were first introduced to Japan. So it was because Smiles was quoting people like Emerson or Mill or Shakespeare even that these books themselves then went on to be translated and became bestsellers in their own right. 
uh, in Japan. So to me, this is fascinating because it shows that um, self-help was not just about kind of teaching people to be self-reliant, but it was also doing this work of spreading literature um, th- and, and in a funny way, in a decontextualized and sort of like a, a non-synchronic way. So you'd have Shakespeare being introduced with Ibsen or something, you know. Um, but it shows that that people were, were learning about literature through Smiles' work um, and not just learning about uh, kind of Victorian <laughs> British literature, but about uh, all sorts of kind of uh, classic Western texts. So I'd, I'd like to understand now... Um, the history of the self-help genre a little bit more. How does this genre, as we understand it today, where does it come from, and and then how does it come together with that title uh, in in Smiles's work? Yeah, I mean, there's so many competing accounts of where self-help really begins. Some people. Uh, really consider it to be a very modern phenomenon and associate it with the 1950s or with the 1930s in, in the U.S. and Dale Carnegie. Um, and, and they're very shocked to think of it as having this longer history. And then other people will say, well, Aristotle had a version of self-help. You can find versions of self-help in Buddhism and all sorts of um, sorts of ancient um, wisdom traditions. And so and so I think it's it's useful to differentiate between kind of the history of conduct literature um, and the rise of the self-help industry proper, um, which I think um, is really um, hinges actually on, on Samuel Smiles and the publication of his book and the context of self-culture surrounding that. So he wasn't the only one using the term self-help or interested in self-culture. Um, there were several kind of pamphlets and things being published around that topic um, when he was writing. But he was the one who turned it into a global sensation and who really kind of managed to embody that spirit um, more, more than any other. But I think that um, it's, it's kind of fascinating that one of these first very popular manifestations of the self-help spirit was um, written by a, a Scottish author, Samuel Smiles, and a huge sensation in in Britain, in Japan, um, all over the world. So, so it, it really kind of broadens our understanding of and our association of self-help as being this specifically American uh, mid-century phenomenon. What are, the, what are the works that come after that kind of carry the genre forward? After Smiles, probably the next most um, important um, self-help author uh, published How to Win Friends and Influence People in 1936. And interestingly, Carnegie himself uh, was largely inspired by someone named Orson Sweat Marden, who is an early 20th century American self-help author who, like so many others, first had this great awakening when he stumbled across Samuel Smiles' self-help in an attic. Um, and, and this is what convinced him that he needed to become a, a motivational, inspirational author. So you see that there's a kind of lineage that can be traced from Smiles to Martin to Dale Carnegie. Um, and, and I think the influence continues. And um, a big part of that influence is the way that Samuel Smiles uh, resisted institutional learning um, and was actually sort of 
not an overly a fan of book learning in general. So even though here he is writing this almost 400 page guide um, to how to live, he kind of his book is is littered with comments to the effect of, you know, living is more important than than learning. Go outside. You know, don't just spend your life um, reading in a dusty library, but go and act and, and make your way in the world. Um, and this this kind of tension between the the active and the contemplative life <laughs> um, continues to inform self-help um, as it goes along so that, you know, a great deal of self-help today is still very invested in pointing out what is wrong with academic or institutional learning and education and in suggesting alternate paths and trying to reach people who feel excluded from these more uh, orthodox kind of intellectual avenues like uh, the university. Okay, so we have the the 1930s American tradition with Dale Carnegie, which we're in a recession, everyone's struggling, and they need they need some kind of help. Um, what what are some of the next milestones um, in 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 the story? So Dale Carnegie is kind of coming at the tail end of a movement called New Thought, um, which is a philosophy that believes in. Um, it's, it's a kind of quasi-religious transcendental philosophy that combines a bunch of different um, spiritual traditions. And it's, you know, very much premised on this idea of positive visualization or what it called the law of attraction, a phrase I think everyone's heard. Um, so the idea that the, the, the energy and the thoughts that you put out into the world will kind of um, attract um, whatever energy you're putting out. So if you're uh, putting out positive energy, then you will attract wealth, you will attract friends and, and success. And um, and this mindset, I think you can see how it extends Smiles' emphasis on um, the importance of not waiting for government uh, support or whatnot, but using your own power of mind and uh, industry to kind of uh, make the most of your situation. And then you can see how that in turn gives rise. I mean, self-help goes in waves. So there's many, um, many different tides um, in between this, but to something like The Secret, which is very much a kind of rehashed new thought philosophy. Um, again, tapping into this idea, this fantasy that there could be a kind of trick to life, you know, or a, a hack. Um, and and that the, the secret to how to live is contained in all of the literature and all of these books of the past, if one knows how to mine them correctly. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, in the wake of The Secret, which was a tremendously popular uh, book of the recent past, you get this life hacking movement, um, which is, um, again, interested in in, first of all, kind of finding alternatives to um, official uh, knowledge practices and kind of subverting um, subverting established ideas about how one should live and what one should do um, and and um, has become tremendously popular today and and then all the way up to kind of the contemporary interest in what right now we're seeing a real resurgence of stoicism and self-help so an interest in um, again this question of uh, using the mind to reframe a situation in order to learn to kind of adjust to it and make the most of it. When Samuel Smiles published Self-Help, 
He was trying to help the 19th century working class in Scotland. But his writing captured universal longings. His book empowered people across the world to take control of their own lives, and it gave them hope that they could actually improve their circumstances. Samuel Smiles' self-help changed the world by inspiring people from all over the globe to, um, to educate themselves, to recognize that they weren't, they didn't have to be limited by the conditions of their birth, um, but that they could um, fashion themselves and change them th themselves through reading, through literature, um, and through this spirit of independence and self-reliance that he promoted. I think there's always going to be a real, a real hunger for advice about how to live and practical tips about how to live and people who are willing to just get really, um, get really explicit about helping people to kind of develop strategies or equipment for living, as it's called. And, and then that's part of the appeal of Samuel Smiles. It's the appeal of Stoicism, uh, Dale Carnegie, and the like. And, and that is something that um, I don't think will ever go out of fashion. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair Undo. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.